Welcome, everyone, to the Extraordinary Games Podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Dave Winchester. Joining me this week for a nice, great, special, uh, super fun episode is my good friend Harrison. This week, we're going to be talking about one of the 360 PS3 era classics known as Bioshock. But before we get into that, a few little notes here and there. First of all, I'd like to thank Johnny V for being our first ever Patreon supporter. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Going forward, I'm going to be doing a little shout out at the end of every podcast to anyone who supports us on Patreon, regardless of the tier you support us at. I just want to thank you all for listening and for showing up each and every week, downloading this podcast, listening to me talk about video games. The reason I'm here is because you guys keep listening, so as long as you keep listening, I'll keep talking about video games. I don't have too much to talk about in this intro today. I'm actually recording this probably about an hour before the episode goes live because this whole week has been crazy hectic. Not only was I working pretty much every day, but the days I wasn't working, I was actually out of town in New Hampshire visiting some close friends, so this was kind of like a... Whenever I have time to record it, we're going to do it, we're going to bang it out, and then I'm going to edit it as quickly as possible. So right after I'm done recording this, I get to go and edit the just about two hour long podcast itself and hopefully post that in time for you people commuting to work on Monday or, you know, I like to start the week off so that people can listen to the new episode. I don't know if that's just me being weird or crazy OCD about it, but I, I like you know, some sort of deadline to meet. I feel like it just keeps me in check a little bit. If my voice sounds a little weird, both in the intro and during the podcast, I'm actually recovering from some sort of like sinus infection cold thing, which has caused me to actually lose my voice for the second time in two months. So the podcast itself, when we recorded it, it was one of those things where Harrison was like, are you sure you want to actually do this or should we wait to see what happens? But I was thinking like at the time, maybe I might have even less of a voice if I wait longer. So we kind of just like shotgun recorded this thing. We had notes and stuff, but it was definitely one of those things where we just threw it together as quickly as we could because like the, the time window was so tight on it. So if I sound a little nasally, I sound a little bit off, that's why. Luckily, my voice is slowly starting to come back, which is how I'm able to record this intro. And uh, hopefully by the next week's podcast... I'll be back to 100%, not having to sip tea through the entirety of the thing to get through it. But we'll see how that goes. Like I was saying before, I was on vacation most of this past week, but I did make some time to play a few games. Mostly I was playing Bioshock just to get ready for the podcast and kind of like brush up on what I couldn't remember about the game. And the time I wasn't doing that, I was actually really, really engaged with uh, Tactics Ogre on the Switch because they just released the the remaster of it or remake. I don't even know what you would call it, but I started playing that and I've been really enjoying it. I've never really gotten into tactical RPGs before. It's not a real genre that I've gone into. Like I own Final Fantasy Tactics uh, both physically and digitally on my PlayStation 3, but I never actually made time to play it. This was the first chance I ever had to actually like jump in and really get to know the systems of the game and how it works. So I was really enjoying that on vacation. 
the only downside to playing that game in particular was that the battles go on for so long that if I had to go do something else, I just had to stop the game and like put my switch in rest mode and hope that when I started it back up, it was okay. I didn't buy it digitally, so there's no risk of like me losing internet connection and then getting screwed on it. But I'm always wary when I like put my switch in rest mode and then have to come back to something like what if there's an update or what if something happens or what if my switch dies and I lose my place. So luckily that never actually occurred. Every single battle that I entered, I was able to at least stop at some point, boot it back up and continue, which is one of the best things about the switch, in my opinion, being able to just stop at any time and then come back to it later as long as your Switch still has charge and you don't have to worry about losing any sort of progress is fucking phenomenal. Unfortunately, that's really been it as far as what I've been playing for the past week. Hopefully this coming week I'll have a little bit more time because my schedule is back on track and I'm not going to be out of town. So I'll be able to play Hi-Fi Rush again. I really want to start and really get into God of War Ragnarok because that game's just like chilling in my PlayStation 5, pretty much taunting me. But between like work and family stuff, I the only time I really have time to play video games is when my son goes to sleep at night or goes down for a nap and I have nothing else to do and like no adult responsibilities. But I'm going to keep trying to plug away at it regardless. I really, really want to finish God of War Ragnarok so that way I can like just like shelve it give it time to digest and kind of marinate in my brain so I can do some sort of review podcast about it. And over the course of my vacation, I was actually thinking about the review podcast as a whole. So what I've decided is that if I've played a game that I think deserves some sort of recognition, but nobody I know has played it and I won't be able to do a full podcast on it, I'm just going to do a solo review and put it up kind of as like a bonus episode. And later on, maybe like further down the line, if it becomes one of those things where it takes up a lot of time to record these podcasts and edit them, like the bonus ones in particular, and I'm doing quite a few of them that I feel like people are getting a lot of value out of, I might add it to like the $1 Patreon tier. But as for now, nobody's going to have to worry about that. I haven't really recorded any solo review ones besides probably... Ghostwire Tokyo and that's just it I'm just putting that up as an EGP podcast one but we'll see how that goes for now don't worry about any of that you just keep enjoying the content like I said you'll probably get a few bonus episodes here and there when I get time to record them like I really want to record a Tormented Souls one and see how that goes and just throw it up as a bonus episode hopefully you guys enjoy it um, and that's really all I have to talk about before the, the actual show Actually, now that I think about it, I have one more thing that I want to mention. We do have a new intro track, and I'm keeping the old intro track as the outro track for the podcast. And the outro track is going to be a little bit shorter. I might just play it as I do some of the Patreon callouts at the end of the episode, but I don't know. You know, until I'm, I'm done editing this thing in two hours, I don't know how it's going to go. But yeah, enjoy the new intro track. I think it's absolutely incredible. I love listening to the full thing. If you guys want to listen to the full thing, the link to my buddy SoundCloud is in the description. Click on it. Go check it out. Uh, I can't remember the name of the actual song right now, so give me one second. I'm going to look it up for you. I know this is great podcasting right here. Really, really primo stuff. Oh, the intro song is called Midnight Maverick. Fucking spectacular name. I think it fits it very well. So if you like it, make sure to check out his SoundCloud. And that's really all I have to say. 
So we're going to get into Bioshock right after this little snippet of some music from the game. And I hope you enjoy it. Dave Harrison, welcome we're back. back to the show. And guess what? We get to talk about today some good old Bioshock, which is like one of the first games we would talk about randomly stocking shelves at work. Absolutely, I vividly recall the first time I interacted with you. You were just coming by, and I saw you had a Bioshock tattoo, which I also do. And we started talking about it very briefly. What's and that's Bioshock kind of how tattoo. That's what I'm curious about. I have uh, Jack's chains on my wrists because I was, I think I was freshly 18 and I was like, these are super cool. I still like them a lot, but it's like Ayn Rand bullshit. And I'm like, uh, I can't, I can't. <laughs> and the best part about tattoos is they're forever. So even if they suck, they're just going to stay uh, on there until you get enough oh, money shit. to remove them. I thought they were for like three weeks at most. Oh, that explains oh, a lot. Oh, if only. The funny thing is, like, I don't know when it happened, but I have a scar on one of the chains, so it kind of looks like a broken link. Like, it's starting to fracture, which is perfect for what we're going to be talking about, the subject matter of Bioshock. But we'll figure out how to segue into that at some more relevant point. Yeah, we can do that. All right, uh, I'll start off with, like, the like what Bioshock is. So for those of you who have played Bioshock, Bioshock is an excellent, I, I don't know, I guess genre changing or blending first person shooter um, developed by Ken Levine, who is of System Shock and Thief fame for those of you that have played those games. So it's kind of a blend between first person shooter and immersive sim thing. And uh, it tells a, a pretty, I would call it a neat story, a very, you know, strange turn of events type of story. And I'm going to warn everybody beforehand, too, that we, we are definitely going to talk about spoilers. Can we, can we agree to that? Like, there's almost no talking about this game without it. And that's kind of the big thing is there is a lot to talk about with story, especially like background story. And it's kind of hard to get into talking about Bioshock, even just the series as a whole, without spoiling, at the very least, the first game, because it works itself into so much more in the world. Yeah, and it, this game is really fucking cool as far as the story goes, in my opinion. It's one of the first games that I think that I played where it really took the player on a ride. So when you started like you had one idea of how the game was going and by the end of the game it really just flipped the script on everything it was almost like the video game version of fight club and i know fight club's kind of overrated now it but that's what it was it was a game version of that where you kind of had an idea where you thought the story was going and by the end of the game it's just nowhere near you thought it would be which is really fucking interesting and cool and the it really takes the writing like video game writing as a whole and i think elevates it to kind of another level especially 
around games that were coming around the same time. This game is leaps and bounds ahead of almost any game that came out before it. That was really one of the strong points of it, too, was the actual storyline of it. Because, on the whole, the gameplay is pretty solid. Like, the gameplay loop is great, but you have this story backing it up. And a lot of hay has been made about the story and whatnot. Like, it involves different sort of beliefs, we'll say, of like economic structuring. And the main antagonist for part of it is Andrew Ryan, which is just an acronym of Ayn Rand. Like all of his ideas are thinly veiled allusions to that. And that's a whole other thing, which I don't think a video game podcast should really get into. So we won't. (laughs) (laughs) I can agree. We don't have to get into it, but we will say that you know, it takes some pretty heavy ideas. Like, this game takes some heavy ideas and stuff about both politics and just overall, like, philosophies on government and things like that and really consolidates it so that way a player can understand what these things are, which, again, a lot of video games don't necessarily do that. Like, this game literally gets into, like, communism versus socialism versus you know capitalism and the differences between them almost like right at the start of the game which is weird because it's it's a game literally literally throwing politics at you right off the bat and it's not in a heavy-handed way it's in a way that actually like it fits the story and one of the first things you see is just you know this giant statue of the founder of the entire environment you'll be in throughout this 10 hour game, maybe conservatively 10 hours. Yeah. I would say 10, uh, eight is, to 10 hours. I would say is probably like the, the best bet. That. The, the creator or the head of this world, this underwater world rapture. It's just a giant statue of him. And it just says no gods, no masters, only man or no gods or Kings, only man. And that's kind of like a, a sort of weird twisted thing because you see this this uh what would you call it like a motto or something uh but, yeah i'd say like yeah. almost like a creed that yeah that you see this creed held. yeah and it's it's completely dwarfed by someone who believes himself to be bigger than that it's it's a funny little thing it's like well even if you don't feel you are in charge of these people Clearly, clearly you want to aggregate the power towards yourself, which that's something that comes up later in the game. Yeah, and again, this is one of those weird things about this game. It touches on the subjects of, like I said before, like capitalism, communism, and how the government essentially rules over its people and the, the pros and cons of these things, which no game's really touched on before. But also, it it lends it to the gameplay itself and what it's all about because without this idea, you wouldn't have the things that run Rapture, which is the the place that this um, game takes place in. I guess we should get into what Rapture is too, because because we kind of hopped into like the politics of it. Yeah, but so so Rapture as a whole is essentially just an underwater. Some people call it a city. I wouldn't even call it a city. I would call it like a, a almost like a freestanding country. Like it was founded by Andrew Ryan as a place where he could kind of 
live out his life in his dream of pretty much running a society and it all takes place at the very bottom of the ocean so this giant underwater city that's broken up into multiple parts but the only government that's really down there is what andrew ryan has set up for the most part and that's that of just pure unadulterated capitalism like this whole society is is based on rich people being able to change literally anything they want about themselves if somebody wants to let's say you know uh, have fire hands they can do that if they want to genetically modify themselves they can do that if they want to dress however there's all sorts of things these people can do just because they're super rich and the when you get down there as the player all this stuff has kind of gone awry so all these people that were super rich and super wealthy and you know living their essential dreams of getting whatever they want are now just like crawling around these dark tunnels trying to to get what little bit of you know adam which is what was essentially running the society back so that way they could feel something again it's really fucking dark and demented an important thing to note is you you get the main story just by playing the game but learning the lore of it is dosed out to you through the game's I guess pseudo collectibles, it's just audio logs, which most games, they're pretty throwaway and not really important at all. When we talked about Dead Space, there is like, you know, there's collectibles in that, but it's just like audio logs that really don't really amount to much. But in Bioshock, I go out of my way every single time I'm playing to find as many as I can or all of them because I just love hearing stories because it's not about like what this one person was doing at this one time and then you don't hear about it no there's characters that are fleshed out through this there's so many characters in this game in voice only and through hearing these you get to know who these people are and their stories going in the background and things like that and you also learn what rapture the eponymous city used to be and then how it got to the point of disarray that it's at when your character Jack, you know, joins the fray, which it's one of my favorite ways to deliver a story because it's not hitting you over the head with like exposition or anything. You have to be the one to seek it out and you're rewarded for it too. If you like the world, you get more of that information. If you don't care about it, you can just keep playing the game. One of the things I enjoyed the most about the audio logs was the fact that you could play the audio logs while you were still playing the game. So many games will take your hand away from playing the game and have you read a text file or have you go into like a separate screen to read the audio logs. Whereas this game, a lot of the time, if the audio log is important to a character in the game or important to the main storyline, they'll place it right in front of the player's path. And not only that, the second you pick it up, it says, hey, hold the A button to play this audio log. And you don't have to. Like, you can go through the entire game and not know a damn thing of what's going on. Because the game will give you, if, if you want them, they'll give you waypoints to tell you where you're going. And, you know, you'll, you'll get some cutscenes with these characters. But if you really do want that story, you're going to hold A for every single audio log and listen to it as you play the game. 
and it's not stopping you in any way. It's not taking away from you exploring the environment. It's just giving you a little bit extra while you're doing what you're already doing. So in my mind, it was like, why would I not want to listen to these? Like, it's not stopping me from doing anything. It's not stopping me from enjoying the game. I can just keep going and like killing splicers and looking for, you know, items and chests and shit like that while this thing's playing and telling me like the backstory to like, you know, how these people ended up getting spliced the way they were or what Andrew Ryan was doing before the fall of the city or like, what about this like Fontaine character and what's going on there? It's just giving you a little bit extra and it's not detracting from anything. And I wish more games did that because I fucking can't stand having to stop playing the game just so I can read some sort of like codex or some bullshit. And that's one of the biggest things for me is like, just how accessible it is. And like I mentioned, you get to meet these characters through most of them. You meet only through audio logs that you find well after the fact they were recorded. They're just like a tape recorder, essentially. Yeah. You get to learn their characters and what happens to them. And most of the characters you meet through those audio logs, you see an entire arc that they could have been an entire character in a different game that you would actually meet and interact with. But it's the company that developed this. It was irrational, correct? Uh, technically, it was 2K Boston, but it was all irrational employees. I think irrational okay. was, was bought by 2K. And I don't know if it was just for this game, because I think afterwards they did um, Bioshock 2 under the irrational name, maybe, or something mm. like that. But yeah, it was essentially irrational games for for better or worse but it it lends itself to good world building and good uh, environmental storytelling one of my favorites is uh there's an audio log about an escaped big daddy or whatever where he like went rogue or some such in like the one of the last areas you're in in the entire game it's like a little uh a little testing area and then later on, you just see him, like you encounter him randomly. And it's a nice little full circle moment. Like, oh, I heard about this through an audio log. And here he is. The world is still built this way. Things yeah. like that. Honestly, the audio logs, the cool part about it is, even though like a lot of the characters that are talking in the audio logs, you will never see, you will never meet. They're just random citizens of Rapture. 90% of the time, they're going to be talking about some sort of important character that's in Rapture to begin with. So they're either talking about Fontaine or the Doctor or, you know, um, like Little Sisters or Big Daddies or any other important part about the story. So you're not just getting some like random snippet of what's going on in Rapture from some like random character. You're getting a random uh, snippet that is contributing to the story in some way if you're paying attention. Like it all links together. But you are also getting a little bit of a snapshot of what those characters were feeling in the moment. Whether it be when Rapture was still like alive and kicking and people were still like enjoying living there. All the way up until the time that Rapture actually fell. Which is the other cool part about this game. Because like you only see the end of Rapture. Like you see the aftermath of like when all the shit hit the fan. The only way you know about how Rapture was before is through the audio logs. 
And the coolest part about that is they actually paint a very vivid picture of what rapture was like before it fell. And I can like imagine what was going on in rapture before anything happened that ruined it just from listening to those audio logs. And it's, it just goes back to the point about like background storytelling. If you want to know more about like, Oh, what is Adam? They have a series of audio logs explaining that like it's a sea slug they found while building the city and they found out it gives you magic or something like it doesn't matter what it does. It's there for the gameplay. But the fact that the people writing it and also just the larger group involved thought as much to give an explanation where it's like, sure, that's that's the answer. That's fine. Like, do you really need to know what a big daddy is? I mean, it would be nice. So they tell you about it. It's like, well, they were divers. They helped build the city. And now we needed them for a specific job. And now we have them doing this. Like, it's all there. Yeah, the writing in this game is top-notch. They really thought of pretty much everything that a person playing this game would ask. It's answered in some way, shape, or form. And that's the coolest part of the story. Like, this could have just been some kind of basic first-person shooter that had cool environments and cool characters, and they could have not done any of this. And it still would have probably done well. But what keeps this game going and what gives this game like legs and makes it live on so long is the fact that the story is just so good. Like it's almost an airtight story. They it's very much like an inclusive thing. You can play just Bioshock one and be completely satisfied. But if you want more, you can play Bioshock infinite or Bioshock two, even though I think Bioshock two is garbage. It does somewhat expand on the the storyline a little bit, but like if you just want to play a good all-encompassing experience bioshock is a great game for that you you can come in play it from start to end and just feel like complete by the time you're done and not like you've missed anything or you have to play a sequel to get it it's like all there and one of the best parts about this game because i really want to i want to do a, a quick deep dive into the story this game's introduction is so fucking good I don't think there's another game intro that is as just like, I don't know, like like burned into my memory as this game's. Because it, at this point, I every time I play, I just, I feel like I'm fucking there. Like that whole like plane crash lighthouse scene is just phenomenal. It's phenomenal. I can't, I can't even describe how fucking good it is in my mind. And every time I play, it's fucking great. Do you, am I the only one that thinks that, or do you think that's just as good? Now, the first few times I played through Bioshock, the intro had me thoroughly engrossed. Like I've, it's probably one of the most non role play, non role playing game based games that I've played through the most. We'll say like I've played this game countless times. But in more recent playthroughs, I I just get upset that there's so much downtime. I think it's a great intro, and I am counting like the entire point, not just like when you first crash the plane or when you're first in like the little submarine or anything like that. I'm counting up until you get to the 
uh, I think it's the medical pavilion is the first like area where it takes the training wheels off and it's like, all right, go explore the game now. Like that entire section, I think it's great for setting up the world, but on subsequent playthroughs, every single time I play through it, I get a little more jaded towards it. But I do agree that it's fantastic and it sets the tone for everything really well. And this is why I include, you know, the part after you ride in in the submarine. It's known as a bathosphere because, you know, fun. But <laughs> because that that dichotomy of like you get this this intro where it's like, oh, I, I didn't want to be beholden to man above. So I went below like that whole like, you know, uh, just this triumphant seeming and then the perfect reveal of like look at this city look at the neon underwater how does it work fuck it don't know don't care it's underwater it's a city and then when you surface into the city proper you see a man get killed within like 20 seconds it's like oh fuck what have i gotten into and to its credit bioshock infinite tries to replicate this but it just it doesn't work as well. I hmm. Yeah, I think Bioshock Infinite stumbles a little bit in the introduction sequence. I'm thinking like as far as like this is my first let, let's say hypothetically this is my first time booting up the game. I remember like back in 2007 playing this game for the first time and that plane sequence where the plane crashes and you could see the fire like glimmering off the water. And you're like, oh shit, I'm in the ocean. What the hell do I do? And like the ship is, the the plane is sinking around you and you look and there's just like the fucking, the lighthouse is there. And you're like, oh shit, that's like literally the only thing around. So you swim to the lighthouse and you go in and it's, the lights come on and you're like, oh fuck, why, what the hell is this? And then you get into the bathosphere and you get the, the whole introduction movie plays and you get to see Rapture for the first time. Like, that as an opening sequence, I personally think is like just masterful game design because at no point are you sitting down just watching a cutscene. Like the game right after the plane crash gives you control. So everything that you're doing from the time the plane crashes to the time you actually get into the medical pavilion, you have agency over. You're not just standing. You are like, yes, you are just standing there. But the game's not forcing you to just like stand there and like watch the guy get killed. If you want, you can go and look at the fucking roof of the bathosphere. Nothing's stopping you from doing that. If you want to just like sit and look at the the texture work on the floor, go for it. The game does not force your head to watch that cutscene, which is really like it's it's very half life of it, if you would. Um, but then once you get out of that, I think for a tutorial section where you know, it gives you the wrench and then you like see the splicers shadows moving and all that stuff. Yes, it's a tutorial sequence, but it's such a well-paced tutorial sequence that I almost can't falter it. Now compare that tutorial sequence to the dead space tutorial sequence where you literally don't have control over your character for what probably the first five minutes of the game and then you have a walking sequence where you can't do anything. And then the shit hits the fan. So you're almost out of control controlling your character 
for the first 10 to almost 15 minutes of of dead space which is fucking like i don't know how that's okay in a game whereas at least bioshock gives you some sort of control i mean i mean i'm just like thinking as like a player at why i like one over the other i think both games are great i just personally prefer the pacing of the tutorial in what's happening in bioshock versus the dead space one and there's an argument to be made about this. I I personally don't like having control taken away from me for cutscenes. It's there's a whole different di- like dynamic of it. And Half-Life 2 popularized the like player agency where things will be happening, cinematic things will be happening, we'll say. And you can totally choose to just stare at the ground the entire time, but then you miss things. And then it's kind of like, oh, well, oh, fuck, I missed that scene. What happened? I wasn't paying attention. So I can understand developers being like, well, you know, we can't have a person not understand what's going on. Like, we, they still need to play a game. Like, you aren't watching a movie. And, but then there's the other end of that where it's like, you know, you're playing Metal Gear Solid and you don't understand what the fuck is happening and you haven't played the game for literally 20 minutes because you've been watching a cutscene. It's like there's a middle ground. And I think Bioshock strikes the right chord because there's scenes that you still have player agency. You can still be doing what you want. You can still be prepping for whatever's going to happen. But the game stealthily directs your attention where it's like, oh, it's kind of hard to not watch what's going on, you know? Like, in the medical pavilion, you, uh, your main goal is to, like, get a key, we'll say. That's most of what the game is when you boil it down. It's like, well, I need a key to go to the next area. It's not that simple. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much. You're on a big fetch quest for the first segment of the game. And when you go to what could laughably be called a boss which we'll get into that. (laughs) You just see this giant window and you see he's like monologuing and it's like impossible to look away from it. Every single time I play the game, even the most recent playthrough I've done like just a couple days ago, I couldn't not watch him. Like I know exactly what he's going to do every time, but I'm like, this is, this is perfect. Like why would I look anywhere else? So we're in half-life two. It's like, "Ah, I just want to, around i don't care what they're doing versus like ultimate extreme you have you have to watch this bioshock does it perfectly where it's like you have agency but the game you know kind of like grabs your shoulder and is like hey how about you you want to look over here so i appreciate that excellent game design Uh, excellent game design excellent storytelling overall um the other thing that like I noticed right off the bat, which I think this game does exceptionally well, is just environmental storytelling throughout the entirety of the game. No matter what area you're in, it seems like the game is trying to tell you a story and like what happened prior to the fall of Rapture and like how it evolved after the fall rapture in my mind i would have to assume the developers pretty much like had like a whole layout for what rapture was and then we're like well how is this going to be affected once shit goes south and then just made that environment 
because there are certain environments throughout the game where you're like, you can kind of see what it was prior. And then when you get there, you're like, holy shit, this is so different than what I like imagined. Um, and I like certain environment environments better than others overall, to be honest. Um, like I can never remember any of the names of the spe specific areas, but there's one area where it's like overrun with like, like fauna. Like there's just like, Oh, that's a uh, Arcadia. Yeah. I, Ar I think it's the Arcadia one where it's just like, there's so many like these bright plants and it just shifts the entire tone of the game because up until that point, you're going through like a lot of dark hallways and dark areas that are like flooded with water. And then you get there and it's just like life and bright colors and vibrancy and every environment you step into in the game has its own feel to it. And its own, like, it, it literally is like it's almost self-contained open-world game area. Uh, which a lot of games, especially first-person shooters, didn't do at the time. But this game has a very open environment. And when I played it most recently, I actually turned... So there's an actual option to turn off the waypoint system. So if you want to just explore the environment and figure out where to go on your own and treat it almost like an RPG, you kind of can. But if you want to just play the game like a first-person shooter, you just turn on the waypoint system. It's going to point you exactly where you want to go. But when I was playing it, I wanted like the more of an immersive experience. So I just turned that off. And it's probably one of the only times I've ever played the game like that. And it was it was a different experience because I had to explore so much more and pay so much more attention to like the audio logs and what people were telling me over the radio and what I had to be looking for versus just having this giant fucking arrow be like, hey, go to this place and like grab this item, which is a, a really cool thing for the developer to put in because it allows you two different ways to play. But then I was like re doing research on this. I didn't know that up until like a couple months before this game came out, people were like struggling getting through it because they didn't know where to go. And that's why they added the waypoint. And that was a big, uh, I recall some level of controversy over that decision, which is why there's an option to turn it off. I, I don't recall the first time playing this. I, I was very young, but I don't recall playing this for the first time and having difficulty like oh where do i go it's just you know it's you just kind of go to all the places and do whatever until you figure out what to do it's not like a point and click adventure you just you know it's a thinly veiled shooter with some diversions to it which it's great at doing the gameplay loop is solid but that i never understood people getting you know lost or mixed up in things well, there's no, I don't think there, well, no, I, I shouldn't say there is no map. There is a map to this game. It's just kind of poor to begin with. So it's, if you're, if you're really confusing. lost, it works. Yeah. It, it's just, and it's weird because it's a 2d map. So you're like, how can it be a fucking confusing 2d map? It just kind of is like if you, it's just like, kind of like a paper map. It's a paper map. And then anytime there's a staircase, it'll have an arrow pointing to like an entirely different section of the page you're on where it's like there's say there's two things drawn and then it's like oh this staircase goes all the way over here it's like well is that geographically accurate it's like no but it's the second floor of that so use your mind it's like well how about you just have like a map that has multiple floors like for as good as this game is there's still some things that don't quite make sense 
and some things that are a little poor, which should we get into like the gameplay of it? Yeah, let's get into the gameplay because I want to save the the overall story arc for the last thing. And the gameplay, this is going to sound horrible because like this, this is probably one of my favorite games. Like this is definitely in my top 10 floating around somewhere. I just did a top five favorite games video. It's not in the top five, but it's definitely in my top 10. But the actual gameplay of the game for the most part is is probably the least fun part of the game in my opinion. (laughs) I'm inclined to agree. The reason we've talked so much about the writing to the point where we started talking about the audio logs, which I still genuinely believe is a great, you know, not addition, but it's something that needs to be there. The reason we're talking so much about the writing of it is because the gameplay loop is just kind of boring. It's it's serviceable. And especially, I don't like using this as a sort of catch-all, but for the time it came out, it was fantastic. Like it was solid, you know. But nowadays, like the guns feel like they have no impact. The only one I really enjoy is the shotgun. But I was trying to, you know, diversify it with like using different weapons. I just kept going back to the shotgun. I'm like everything else feels lackluster. The enemies have no reaction to what I do. Why would I bother using anything besides the most efficient? And the crazy part is that the weapons, you could tell they put time and thought into a lot of the weaponry because they have like different types of ammo for each weapon. They all feel very different, but they just don't, for the most part, they just don't feel good to use. Like the only weapons that I found good to use are um, the things that were like the most out there, like the like the uh, grenade launcher or... Uh, the crossbow like you could set up traps like things like that felt good because i wasn't directing like directly having to shoot enemies the second you have to shoot an enemy it everything goes to shit the shotgun feels so good because it's literally a huge reticle you just get as close to the enemy as you can fucking pull the trigger and hope for the best but even using just like a standard like tommy gun style weapon because all the weapons are kind of based around the era of the game which is like i can't remember the exact era but somewhere between the like 1930s to 1950s i would assume somewhere around the time i had this i had this in my head at one point i think there's an audio log that or like i think you get there after the new year of 1954 maybe i'm misremembering maybe it's like like 1948 it literally says the actual uh year at some point, I just can't yeah, recall. But I mean, these guns aren't, you're not looking at M4s and shit like that. You're looking at like old school, like Tommy gun style weaponry, thing, things of that nature, like old revolver pistols, uh, stuff along those lines. But the second you like go to actually use the guns, they're just horrible. Like the reticle kind of sucks on them. Um, most of them you can aim down sights, but when you're firing, when you're aiming down sights, it, you're just you're essentially just spraying like the ads just doesn't work you know what dave i i think i just realized something it's because they've been uh submerged in salt water for probably two decades that <laughs> explains it we we can't we shouldn't be talking about how shit the gunplay is in this game yeah but here's the crazy part though on the opposite end of the spectrum as shitty as the gunplay is i think adding the plasmids in really makes up for it because for whatever shitty scenario you get yourself into with the guns, 
the plasmids or the magic or you know uh, it is what it is the plasmids are essentially magic fucking it makes up for it in every single respect the plasmids themselves the, the fact that you can interact with the environment using the plasmids is a, a game changer like the first time you have a splicer that's like standing in water and you have an electric bolt plasmid and you shoot the water and it fucking fries the splicer my my whole mind just like fucking it, my mind blew up it was just like holy shit like this is a thing that you could do in video games all along and i'm just now seeing it for the first time and that's one of my favorite things about bioshock as a series like as it goes on further they just keep refining it and people don't like bioshock 2 i'll never understand that i like it a lot we'll talk about that another time maybe who knows but bioshock 1 to me has always felt like a proof of concept and then bioshock 2 has been like okay let's refine it it was very clearly like love and effort went into that game as well but bioshock 1 will always be my favorite is the problem because all the good ideas were already done in bioshock 1 but bioshock 2 has all the like refinement gunplay feels better i wasn't defaulting to just one gun in that game but Bioshock 1 still has all the cool areas, all the good storytelling, things like that. But the plasmids in Bioshock 1 easily outweigh the the guns. The guns are boring, they're basic. But the plasmids, you can have one that you shoot bees out of your hand. That's that's great. I never use it, but it's fun. And it also makes some other things a little more viable. One of the first things you do in the game is you're told to like you know hit someone with an electric bolt and then hit him with a wrench because it does way more damage because it probably would in real life. Why not now? And I find myself using that constantly throughout the game. I'm like, fuck it, you know, it'd be fun hitting someone with a wrench. And on my latest playthrough, towards the end, I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to do a wrench only. I'm not going to bother with guns. I'm done with it. And that was still viable throughout, so... Somewhere along the line, someone got mixed up, and a machine gun is no longer viable. But a wrench? Hitting someone with a wrench still, that's pretty good. I think it's weird that the game decided to have a really good upgrade system for certain things, and then a really shit upgrade system for the weaponry. And I think that's where they really went wrong. Because if you're looking at the, the game, the plasmids get like this really robust like system like you get so many different plasmids and then you get to do like different tweaks and upgrades to things same thing goes with like um even down to like the shitty hacking mini game well the, the hacking mini game that you probably don't like but i i fucking i love i don't know what it is oh we'll get it i don't that. know what it is about the little pipe mini game but i fucking love it so much but there are plasmids that help, I mean, um, like upgrades that help with that. But it seems like the guns, like nothing you do to the guns really improves how they handle, how they function outside of ammunition. Like outside of like, oh, you get like a r electric rounds or the shotgun, which really help with like the big daddy fights or like different types of ammo for weapons. The guns are very static and they're very boring to use. And like you said, they don't really feel like they pack a punch when it comes to like hitting enemies and there are like a ton of fucking wrench upgrades so that way the wrench is super viable which is like the weirdest goddamn thing but there are so many people that can just like run through the game just using the wrench 
because the amount of upgrades that you can get for it and then combining it with the plasmids make it like one of the most viable weapons throughout the entirety of the fucking game. And it's like, why didn't you it's, put that effort into the fucking guns? It's one of my favorite ways to play the game. I did one that was just a wrench only run at one point and I was having fun with it. I was like, this is fucking amazing. I feel like a tank. But then, and there, the problem is there is actual up in-game upgrades for the guns, but it still doesn't feel great minus the shotgun for me. Because... You know, there's something where you increase the rate of fire for the shotgun and then it does more damage. That's perfect. That's all I want. But then you get to the machine gun, the Tommy gun. It's like it says it does more damage, but the damn thing can't hit anything. And also, like doing a little extra damage in this regard, it's it's nothing. So I'm just going to keep going with what works. And I tried at one point to use guns I hadn't used because I'm like, no. I gotta, I gotta see all of them. It just didn't work out, and maybe I'm playing the game wrong. I don't know. I don't think you're playing but the I game also, wrong. I think you're playing the game in a a way that is most fun to you, and I think that's the biggest issue. Is the there is no fun gun gameplay. Like the amount of times that like the most fun I've had in a battle is like hacking a turret and then leading enemies over to that turret and watching them kill the enemies versus like just sitting there and trying to shoot them with a Tommy gun. I I find that way more fun. Like every single time or hacking a security camera. So that way when an enemy runs by the security camera catches them and like sends out a drone to kill them. Like those are the things that I find fun. But again, I like, I feel like in a first person shooter, the gunplay should be at least a little bit fun. And that's the problem is, the gunplay isn't fun, and that's the big part of the gameplay loop, where it's like, alright, I'm doing this again. The enemies don't really change up. There's different types of them, but it essentially boils down to like, oh, this guy is a melee guy, but this guy's a ranged guy. Like, that's about it. Minus the pseudo-mini-boss characters, they're known as big daddies. So, I guess we could get into that then. Yeah, the the big daddies are like one of my favorite parts of the game and also somehow simultaneously my least favorite parts of the game. But they're the easily the coolest designed enemy of that entire decade. They're just so fucking cool looking that I wish they were more fun to fight. And this is why I say Bioshock 1 is a proof of concept and Bioshock 2 refined it because Bioshock 2, a lot of the problems people had with Bioshock 1, what little there was, the game was highly, like, incredibly well-received, both critically and audience-wise. Uh, they, you know, refined what was already a really good game. So they expanded on the Little Sisters, which is how you get upgrade material, we'll say, for your your superpowers, your plasmids. But then also, like, little things you can change about your own DNA. But basically, you have to fight the big daddies to get to the little sisters. Bioshock 2 expanded on that. And then it took it even further with, like, you know, pseudo-boss encounters afterwards, which Bioshock 1 is distinctly lacking in, which I think is an issue for a lot of, uh, what is it, immersive sims. I, I feel I've, the ones I've played haven't really done it too well. They're all, every time there's any sort of boss, it's always, like, 
rushdown, big boss, bullet sponge character. And this game is is the same way. When you fight the big daddies, like the first couple times you fight the big daddies, the first encounters, if you would, um, the first like two are pretty easy to take down. If given the weapons that you're provided, like you can either take it down with like a machine gun or you can take it down with a shotgun pretty easy. But later on, as time progresses in the game, um, they become much, much harder to kill. Like they have way more life and there's nothing showing you that they have more life. It's just one of those things that like you'll fire around at them and you'll be like, oh, they're not taking as much damage. And this game turns into like almost like a, a splinter cell trial and error run where you'll see a big daddy and you'll like pause the game, quick save, and then take a shot or two at it, see how much damage it takes, see what you're dealing with, and then instantly reload your save. And then if you're anything like me, you just set up fucking a bazillion booby traps around this motherfucker. Like you set up like... uh like the trip lines so that way if they hit it like they get electrocuted or you set up grenades on the ground and then you just lure them in and then let them essentially kill themselves and once you can do that once you get the weapons for that the big daddies are like a non-issue in the game which is ridiculous because they're the things that you have to kill to get the upgrades like they're literally protecting the little sisters that you can either sacrifice or save to get more um, more atoms to, to upgrade your shit. So once they become easy to take down, the game essentially goes into easy mode because you have almost infinite currency to upgrade the most powerful things in the game. It's funny you mentioned like the strategies employ you employed because I always just like walked up to them and just blasted away. Anytime they tried to rush me, I would just, you know, zap them with, you know, Electro Bolt to stun them and then just keep going at them. That's how simplified it is. And it's it's difficult to really back the game up on that. Like, oh, that was just a decision. Like, no, it's just... It, essentially, you're just a enemy with more health. But what ropes me back in is the fact that there's two types of big daddies, which for the first game of a series, that foresight where it's like, all right... They're getting too comfortable. Let's have a different version. That is pretty good. And they did actually want to employ a third one, which showed up in Bioshock 2 afterwards. It almost entirely how they envisioned it when making the first one. But they just didn't have the time or resources to. So all of these things have been thought out. And it's clear that the developers wanted to do more with what they could, but they were already pushing it on things. So I give them leeway in that, but it's still like you just can't really get over the fact that it's like right, I can just I can just treat you like any other enemy, essentially. Yeah, especially one that's so intimidating. Like when you first come across a big daddy, they're fucking huge and they're scary as shit. But once you take down like the first two of them, you realize like they're they're pretty much pushovers. Like if if you know what their attack patterns are, you can easily take them out. And yeah, you can just electrobolt them because electrobolt stuns them. And I would say that the Rosie is a, a good idea because the Rosie is the the second kind of big daddy that has this rivet gun that will that actually can hit you from long range versus the regular big daddy, which just has the drill arm and will rush you. But the Rosie you literally encounter 
in the next area after the medical pavilion. Uh, I think it's Neptune's Bounty. The first area, all you come across is Big Daddies. You kill two of those. The next area, you encounter the Rosie, and you've seen all the different Big Daddy variations by then. Like, within the second level of the game. They're right there. Everybody has a different way to take down a Big Daddy, but with that being said, every way to take down a Big Daddy is pretty fucking easy. You can, if you wanted to, you could just make sure you're going into every fight with like five or six med kits and just shotgun them in the face and they'll go down pretty easily. Even then though, it's even easier because of the game's like sort of revive system. I don't know why they decided on this. I think it's a, you kind of get the best of both worlds, but you get these like little revive chambers known as Vita chambers, where if you die, you're just sent back to it. If you're familiar, think Borderlands, where you just get revived and you just lose a bit of money. But even simpler, because I don't think Bioshock takes anything from you. It just, like, wholesale brings you back to life and you're fine. Yeah, it just takes your time. But That's all it takes. It takes a little bit of time to get back to where you were. And a lot of the times, the Vita Chambers are actually, like, right where or right outside where a big battle would take place. So if you die, you just it's you get right back in. Yeah. And that makes the stakes so dramatically low. When I was playing through most recently, I was playing on like the hardest difficulty. And then I was like, I don't think I'm going to finish this in time. I was doing completely fine. It's not a difficult game by any stretch of the imagination, but I was also trying to not die. So I was like, ah, this is taking a while. Uh, I keep reloading to not die, like things like that. And I was like, Fuck it. I'm just going to do the Vita Chambers, whatever. It doesn't take anything from me besides my pride. But if that is something that you dislike because it it removes the stakes from the game, they have an option to just disable that, which I don't recall if that was initially in the first launch of it. I think it was patched in later. Yeah, it was patched in but, uh, a couple months after the fact. And I think it, the only reason it was patched in if I remember correctly, is there was an achievement on the 360 called, like, I don't remember if it was, like, Big Balls or something like that, but it was beat the game without Mm. using Mm -hmm. a Vita Chamber, but it was actually glitched. So even if you beat the game without using a Vita Chamber, it would still not pop the achievement. So I think that was their loophole around fixing that, is they just allowed you to turn Vita Chambers off entirely. Which, that should be how you play the game, but then... You're just going to be save scumming, which, you know, I don't trust any saves at all. And I don't trust my Xbox to not just crash randomly. So I'm save scumming every single game that lets me, but I still try to not die. But that's the problem with it is the game is too easy, even when you're playing on the hardest difficulties, because I was playing on, I think it's called Survivor. It's one above hard. And I was like maxed out on cash by the end of i think neptune's bounty and i was doing really well but i was also not having fun doing it because i was save scumming i was reloading constantly and then when i would die it would be to something stupid like a turret shot me a friendly turret shot me in the back of the head because i was trying to shoot an enemy across the map like how was i supposed to counter that game (laughs) i thought i was doing well but that being said, game's easy, but it makes up for it in other ways. I honestly think, and I was thinking about this today, 
because when I was playing it, I came across a couple of Vita Chambers and I was looking at them. And my whole thought process was, okay, I understand why these are here. These are here so that way when new players come to the game and they die, they don't feel like they're getting screwed. But this game doesn't have a system that blocks you from saving whenever. So the only person it's really punishing is people that are just too lazy to save overall. And it's not even punishing them that much. Like, worst case scenario, and this is the absolute worst case scenario, you go into a battle, you fire a couple rounds off, and then you die and get revived at the Vita Chamber. Hypothetically, right? Let's say this happens. And then you go back to the battle and all the splicers have used the like the little medical machines to get all their health back. So technically, you lost ammo because their health didn't remain the same. And by the time they you got back to the battle, they had all their health back. But even then, like you can eventually just go into that battle and probably fucking wrench them to death. So it doesn't even really matter. In my opinion, what they should have done, if they wanted to make the game easier if you died, but not so easy that you get this situation where it's like you can just die and get revived at the the Vita Chamber and just like wrench the entire game and doesn't matter because you're just going to respawn there. Have people have to pay for the Vita Chamber they're coming, like getting revived at. That's what confused me in my most recent playthrough because normally I do save scum. But then eventually I was like, if I'm going to get through this in a timely manner, I just have to bite the bullet and take the pride hit. And every time I revived at a Vita Chamber, I was like, did it take any money from me? Like, why wouldn't it? Because money is super plentiful. And that's a huge problem of the game is like the resources are plentiful. They're everywhere. And if you're like me and you kind of just default to one gun, it's like, all right, well, like it was to the point where. I'm a klepto in video games and want to loot everything, but my wallet was full, which is something you can do for some reason in this game. Well, not for some reason, it's to like add artificial challenge, but then it would just get to the point where I was like, all right, I'm going to go buy something. So I have the satisfaction of knowing I looted the money from this. Like that's how it was. That's what it was getting to. And it took away challenge from me. So it's weird to me that this game doesn't allow you to carry like a, a shit ton of money, yet your character by the end of the game has how like what eight weapons on them at any given time? Because I think <laughs> there's a weapon for every single diagonal and normal up, down, left, right corner of the the weapon wheel. There is, but like the pocket change, which by the way is mostly paper money that you find, is too heavy to carry. It just won't fit in his wallet, so he doesn't know what to do with it. And the same thing goes with the plasmid upgrades, like all the upgrades, like there's a finite amount of them that you can have before it maxes out. And it's just ridiculous to me. There should be like a mode where there's just like an infinite, like you can equip everything. Just fucking call it a day. Let me equip everything through the game and play God mode. And the, the re-release of it, I'm not even going to call it a like remaster because it's laughable. The game always looked great. Even when it was originally released on like 360, and was it on PlayStation 3? Yeah, it came out on both. Uh, the 360 version was a little bit better, but because I think the PS3 version had like screen tearing and some other like mm-hmm. visual issues, but the the 360 version was like the main version most people played on. Yeah, 
Either way, when the game was re-released, it, uh, oh, fuck, edit this part out. I completely forgot what I was calling it, though. <laughs> what, were, what were we talking about? Oh, no, you got into the the HD remaster of this game, which, by the way, fucking, it's, it's barely a remaster. They changed, like, I think a couple signs and a couple textures, and... Uh, released it on Switch and Xbox One and PS4, and it runs at 60 frames per second. That's the only good part about those games. They run at 60 frames per second, and I don't think they're screen tearing because um, the original games themselves on the 360 and PS3, you could unlock the frame rate or leave it locked. So you could lock it at 30, which kind of is like shitty for a first-person shooter just overall. Or you can unlock the frame rate, but the game fucking, it tore your screen up. Like, any time you turned, your screen would be in, like, three different places. It was fucking bananas. I guess we could probably keep this in, then, because that was informative. (laughs) Yeah, I played every version of this game. I actually, when I was playing uh, to catch up for this podcast, I was playing on the Nintendo Switch. Because I have it on the Switch, and I was like, I wonder how the Switch version plays surprisingly not bad it is 30 frames per second but it's it's definitely playable and it looks really good i may have to get it because i truly do love this game in any capacity i think they even had like a weird phone game at one point probably the the strange time to be alive the early 2000s yeah um but yeah you know it's still a solid game all things all things considered I would say that this game, back when it came out, was probably, mm, I wouldn't say the best looking game that year, because this game did come out the same year as Call of Duty and Halo 3, but it was definitely up there. It was That was a... Yeah. I don't think enough can be said about that year, because I think Dead Rising also came out that same year. I think it was the previous year, because I'm pretty sure it was... um, it wasn't, oh, it, was a, a it wasn't launch a launch title, wasn't it? I don't know if it was a launch title, but it was really close to launch title. So it was either 2005 or 2006, if I remember correctly. All I remember is when I first had an Xbox 360, I had, I think, three games. Call of Duty 4, mm, Dead Rising, and Bioshock 1. And those three games, I also got Halo 3 whenever it was around, but... Those games formed my, you know, gaming palette so very much. And I have lived long enough now to see three of them, maybe four, kind of just die. <laughs> like, those, the series is our, Dead Rising's dead. We may never see a good one again. Bioshock is in limbo. And jury's still out on if Call of Duty and Halo are dead. Some people say yes, other people don't care. Yeah. So, fun fun fact here. Um, so, 2007. In 2006, I like got into my first serious relationship. But by 2007, I was like literally splitting my time between like my girlfriend and video games and work, and that was it. Like that's all I was doing. And 2007 was such a good year for video games. It, you had Mass Effect, uh, Mass Effect, Halo Three. Bioshock. The Darkness also came out that year, which is really fucking good. I want to say Condemned 2 might have been this year or the following year. Um, Gears of War had just come out. Like, like 2007 was fucking slammed for video games. So much so that 
I realized I was playing so many video games that like my relationship was hurting. So I actually quit uh, quit video games yeah. for an entire year. So between, I want to say the beginning of 2008, like February of 2008, all the way through 2000, maybe nine or 10, I actually didn't have any video game systems in my house. And I played almost no video games. It was fucking wacky. It was no so day. wacky. Are you still with that same person from 2007? Fuck no, I'm not. That chick was a psycho. Are you still playing video games? Hell yeah, I am. And enjoying every minute of it. Ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case. <laughs> but yeah, it was it, it was just such a fucking crazy year for games. But this one was definitely one of the highlight like, games of that year, for sure. Oh, without a doubt. This game like, came out oh. at such a good time and was like a renaissance of first-person shooters and this one probably led the way for it because i think this came out in august and then in september you had halo and then in november you had call of duty and it was like the oh it's just amazing shit like a shit i never would have believed all in one year it must have been difficult to be a game developer at that point trying to know like what is informing the market and then everyone kind of just like agreed like hey call of duty probably that's a safe bet we'll just go with that but i feel there's an argument to be made about bioshock one's success in that regard of you know informing what appreciates that because at the end of the day if you boil it down the gameplay of it is closest to a shooter i've seen some people label it an rpg that's stupid <laughs> You can say that about anything. Call of Duty is a role-playing game. I'm role-playing a tier one operator. Fuck it. Sure, whatever, if you say that. But, you know, it's it's not a survival horror game either. It's a immersive sim that has horror elements, which, by the way, it does that pretty well. Like, there's times where the game still gets me. All these years later, I am no longer a child, shockingly. <laughs> uh but there's still times where i'm like "Ooh, that was good that was spooky and it got me again just randomly it got me it's like this most recent time none of the planned scares ever get me now it's the unexpected ones because as much as the game knows how to use like shadows and misdirection and sound to its advantage it also understands sometimes horror is quiet that leads me to my point about um, I was just walking randomly. I think it was in Arcadia, that level. And I turned to go through a door. Or I was at a vending machine and turned. And there was just an enemy there. And they were equally as shocked to see me like see them <laughs> as I was to see them. So the enemy and I at the same time went, oh, fuck. And then like a battle broke out over that. Or like they ran away and I was like, this is, this game is still getting me. This is fantastic. This game, what really shocked me my last playthrough with this game was the fact that. What really that, Bioshocked you? Oh, oh. Okay, sorry, continue. Yeah. No, uh, what really shocked me was when I was playing it, I forgot how much this game had horror in it. Just like horror elements. Like I remember a lot of the shadow stuff, like the, um. In the beginning of the game, the splicer with the crib. I remembered that from previous playthroughs. And 
a lot of like the little like ghost scenarios where you'll see like um almost like fuzzy like TV, TV images of splicers or people from Rapture that from time like the time before Rapture fell or just around that time. But it's the other stuff that really like threw me off. Like when you go into Neptune's Bounty for the first time, there's literally like a guy crucified right at the the entrance to Neptune's Bounty. Or when you you um meet the doctor in right before the boss battle with the doctor and he's just like stabbing a dude in the chest like over and over and over again. And I'm just like, holy shit. Yeah, I forgot that this game was a it's a it's a horror game, but it blends so well into the storytelling and environment that you almost forget it. You like forget like all these atrocities are happening and like all this really fucked up shit is going on in this environment because it's kind of secondary to like all the other like crazy shit that you're seeing with the splicers and the big daddies and the little sisters and like the the magical plasmids and stuff and i think it's really cool that they were able to to put all that horror into this but not have to call it a horror game it's just an immersive sim that takes place in a weird underwater city and that's what i like i i love horror i think we both agree that we're big on horror i think we've established that by this point oh yeah for sure but but I love it. I love the idea of a horror shooter or horror immersive sim. Like, that's fantastic. That's how you get me going on that. I've played a bunch of Call of Duties. They, a bunch of them have done nothing for me. But this, this would get me to play anything. If you did a Call of Duty that was horror-based and I wasn't a fan, then then you would have my attention. But this game, you make a good point with that. Because it's like adding a theme to your game, essentially, which sounds silly and obvious, but I think too many games make try to make too much noise over having an identity. But this game just knows exactly what it wants to do and executes it so flawlessly. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of Dishonored, where if you try to really cubby Dishonored into some sort of like game style, you really can't. Because it, there's just so many mechanics and different things going on with that game. Like you can't, you can call it a stealth game, but you don't have to play it as a stealth game. You can call it an action game. You don't have to play it as an action game. You can call it a puzzle game in some respects because, like, half the time you're assassinating people, you don't have to assassinate them, or you can do these really elaborate tricks to assassinate them and shit. There's just so many different experiences in that one game that you, you can't really label it. It like dishonored. It is what it is. It's, it's kind of like thief, but better. You know what I'm saying? And the same thing goes with this game. Like it's definitely got horror elements to it, but it's also definitely got RPG elements to it and immersive sim elements to it and first person shooter elements to it. It's all these things just thrown together in this like crock pot, and it all comes out like as this kind of amalgamation of like a game, but you can't cubbyhole it into a genre. It just doesn't work. And that's why I think the immersive sim, like as a whole, works really well because it's it's a great catch-all. Like, what do you want your game to be? I don't know. I kind of want to have some stealth. Kind of want to have some action. It's like, all right, 
that's fine by me. You're an immersive sim now. And with Dishonored, it feels like it gets that line really well. Because every time I play it, I'm like, nah, if I, if I do any combat, it feels bad. It feels like I'm getting the bad ending. <laughs> I want to be stealthy. And then I save scum and I'm like, nah, I'm getting angry. I'm going to kill. Yeah, the game, like, it knows what it wants you to do, but it doesn't punish you all that bad if you don't do it. Same thing with this game. Like, this game wants to be a first-person shooter really, really bad, but it also wants you to, like, use plasmids a lot or, like, do wacky shit. Like, I played through a majority of this game the same way almost every single time, and that's, like, I have my, like, shotgun, and then I have my telekinesis. And 90% of the time, I'll use the telekinesis for some wacky shit, like throwing bombs back at people or fucking like throwing like a oil canister at like a, a big daddy and then like shooting it. And like, I, the telekinesis power is just like my go-to fuck around power. But it, it definitely doesn't make this game feel like a first-person shooter when I'm using it. I kind of feel like a, like a mage in Skyrim or something when I'm using it because all the weird shit I could do. Just, just super fun. And that's why I say later games refine the concept more. Because when you go to Bioshock 2, you're, you know, the entire time you're playing Bioshock 1, you're like, well, I'm holding a pistol and my other hand can do magic. Why am I not using both at once? Like, what, am I using both hands for my pistol right now? I'm not. And then you get to Bioshock 2 and it's like, he's strong enough now. He's, he's an actual big daddy. He can do both. Yeah, that's a great way to explain like the oversight you had or like the balancing issues. And then they also like, you know, refine it more. By the time you get to Bioshock Infinite, I can't definitively tell you which is my favorite plasmid. We'll say they call it something different. Yeah, I can't remember what they call but it in that. I can, but it'll sound really bad if I say it like it. it it's not good for an audio medium. <laughs> Like it just sounds like the bad word, but either way, like the plasmids in that game, there's one where it's like the the insect swarm from Bioshock One, but it's crows. Like that's even better already. Every single one feels more viable, and same thing with the guns in Bioshock Infinite. Like they clearly know what games they want to make and how to make them better, but the only real way for them to get that going is they do the best they can with one game put it out and then see what people like and don't like what people like stays what people don't like you know they work on fixing the problem is a big part of bioshock is the actual location of rapture meaning the environment itself in bioshock one you have all these interesting areas it's tough to pick a favorite because it's Fort Frolic, but it's tough. <laughs> it's tough to pick a favorite. And because they all have these different things, you know, an audio log in medical pavilion by somebody leads you on this entire journey of knowing who this person is. By the time you get to, I think it's called Hephaestus. There's some people who like you see the ultimate end of their time and rapture you know just like they eventually tried to overthrow andrew ryan because the situation devolved because the entire concept of a city underwater free of government legislation and things like that 
an entirely free market in his world, you know, crumbled. Also because they had these magic sea slugs. But, you know, the concept is probably not long for this world anyway. But you go through all these interesting areas. And that's my biggest test for a game that has a sort of like level structure to it is are there interesting areas in it? Bioshock does it incredibly well. Even the most boring areas, arguably, are still enjoyable. Like, they still have things to discover and still have personality. But the problem with Bioshock 2 is the cool areas have already been done. So now you got to do something else. And the environments in that game are just too, too boring. You literally come upon, like, an old, like, carnival area or, like, beach. Not beach side, but, like... Yeah, like a what you would see on a pier, kind of like an arcade type thing with like a carousel and everything. But it's been flooded, so it's all green and gray, so there's nothing fun anymore. That's the problem with that game. Gameplay of that, super tight. Environment, bad. Which just goes to show how much the City of Rapture plays a role in informing the gameplay of Bioshock. Bioshock 2 also had the issue where they really wanted to get it out very quickly and it be a a direct sequel to Bioshock 1, which was, in my opinion, a horrible idea. I feel like if Bioshock 2 had another year in development, it would be a whole different story. Like, we would be talking about that game like it's as good or if not better than Bioshock 1. Kind of like we talk about, like, Dead Space 1 versus Dead Space 2. I'm sorry, Mm. Dead Space 2 is a far superior game in a lot of respects than Dead Space 1 is. And it's one of those things where it's like, we'll never know what Bioshock 2 could have been. Like, it it is what it is. People love it. People hate it. I don't hate Bioshock 2 by any means. I think it's a great gameplay experience. Like you said, it refined a lot of what Bioshock 1 did. But with that being said, it's the story and everything else that kind of like drags it down. Or the pacing of the game, too, I don't feel like is as good as Bioshock 1's pacing is. And Bioshock 1 has this excellent, like, effect, I guess I'll call it, where you almost never come in contact with anybody else in Rapture outside of enemies. Like, every character you meet, like, in person, is an enemy in some respect. So you're the only one there. So the only other thing you're really interacting with outside of the, the splicers and the big daddies is the environment. So really, the other main character in Bioshock 1 is Rapture itself. Like, that's what you're interacting with the most. That's what you're learning about the most. That's your, you're almost the direct antagonist of your character is Rapture. Rapture's falling apart. The reason you're there is, you know, because of of, a a big piece of Rapture, which we'll get in in the story in a minute. But Rapture is just as important to this game's narrative as the main character is. And you can't say that any other character in the game is as important as Rapture. Like, Andrew Ryan isn't interacting with you enough to be as important as Rapture in the environments. Same thing with Atlas. Atlas is talking to you all the time, but he's just issuing fetch quests. He's not really, like, you kind of get to know him, but for the most part, you're interacting interacting with Rapture more than anything else in the game. And when you come back to Rapture in Bioshock 2, 
it's just not the same rapture. It doesn't have the appeal that the original rapture did, you know? I definitely agree on that. Like, the city is a character. I know, you know, different things have said that before. But with Bioshock, it's especially prominent because it has this air of loneliness and longing to it. Like, you don't... There's no friendliness in Rapture. There's there's no warmth left in this place. What started as an idea of an escape, you know, where great minds and great artists alike are valued equally, and the the working person is rewarded for their gumption and for their efforts. Ultimately, it crumbles under its own hubris and its own issues that are just innate human problems. Like, an entirely free market is is doomed to just be commodified by those seeking ultimate greed, which we get into the ultimate villain of this game, Frank Fontaine, who is that greed epitomized. He is a the game's con man who just sees profit in everything, and he hears about this city being made by this eccentric, we'll say, who, you know, Andrew Ryan values the arts and science alike. He brings the greatest minds into his city because he just wants the best and brightest. But then Frank Fontaine infiltrates it, and that's a whole new thing, which should we get into? We preface this with spoilers, and we're almost all the way through and have not mentioned the actual giant spoiler of it, should we? Yeah, yeah. I think, okay, let's let's do the full rundown of the game. So that way, from start to finish, people know what's going on with with Rapture as a whole. Because we talked about the lighthouse in the beginning of the game. The whole, the whole game starts with just a simple man reading something in a book, or on a piece of paper, I should say, on a picture, and a plane crash. And then from there, you wash up and find this nice lighthouse that takes you down to Rapture. Once you're in Rapture, Atlas tells you, would you kindly, you know, go and fetch things and get to this area so that way you can save my family? Like that makes sense to me. You're trying to save someone else. So you're doing it for the good like a good cause essentially. And the entire time this is happening, Andrew Ryan's just telling you, you're an asshole. Like, why are you here? Like, do you even know what the hell you're, you're even here for? Like, how did you get here? The whole nine after, I don't know how, how many different fetch quests and things, something you, you essentially, the easiest way to say is you come face to face with Andrew Ryan. And from there, the the twist happens. Now I'll let you give away the twist. I think I've summed up. That's a, a pretty good sum up of the game, correct? Yeah. Like it's there's not a whole lot of story, like large scale story, we'll say, up until the part where you see Andrew Ryan, which I know everyone everyone I've talked to who has played this has talked about this, but you see Andrew Ryan, the the supposed villain of the story, but you haven't seen him do anything actively villainous 
you just get it like secondhand through all the dialogue and people telling you so much. And then you see him. And one important distinction I always thought about was you see this man and he looks totally normal. You've been going through like six hours maybe of fighting, you know, things that used to be people will still are, but they're all morphed. It's a, it's a big body horror game too. You can still tell they're people, but clearly, you know, time underwater has done something to them. And then you see the head of the city. You're like, holy shit, this guy just looks like a dude. It looks like Walt Disney. What is happening? He's very Disney-esque. Yeah. He's like Howard Hughes meets Disney. Yeah. <laughs> but you see him. He's totally fine because he truly believes in his city. Like he still thinks it's good enough. Until you get there, and then it's just like showing you what you are, which, you know, you find out once you kill Andrew Ryan, he gives you, you get a key from him, and you give control over to Atlas, which, spoilers, is Frank Fontaine the con man the whole time. I don't know how he goes from having like such a thick, like New York accent, you stupid kid. To having to like him having a uh, like Irish, a it's laughably a, Irish accent. It's so poorly done. It's such a poor Irish accent. I don't get it. I'm a little Irish. Irish. I were drinking. Ha ha ha. No, I like if he's genuinely meant to be a thickly accented New Yorker, like that's who he actually is. How the hell is he able to change his voice? Regardless. Hey, secondly, why would he, like, he really wouldn't even why have to Irish? change his just be, But think about just it. Just be a different New York guy. Like, are there, does it matter? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Are there any audio logs with Fontaine in them? I think there's there only, are actually. Okay, there are. About, there are. Uh, okay, I was going to say, like, why would he even need to change his accent anyways? If I, no I was just logs? thinking about that. I'm like, if this guy doesn't, like, if, if Jack doesn't know who Frank Fontaine is, like, you still could get away with it. Like, fuck it. Yeah. How many but New Yorkers big, are there? Like, yeah. it's, it's kind of dumb. The, the big twist is that you've been betrayed. The guy who's been helping you, Atlas, has secretly been the actual asshole who just wants control of the city, which is hilarious because I don't know if he knows it, but the city is is literally not even sinking. It's sunk because it's underwater, but it's sinking. Like, yeah, it's falling everything's apart. falling apart. Yeah, the, the plane that you arrived in actually ends up crashing into a, a section of the city. It, it takes out like a, a, a good chunk of it to begin with. But on top of that, the city was already falling apart. There were leaks everywhere. Like it, it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna last. And then it's a double, double plot twist, or like you know, two plot twists at once. We'll say, yeah, because not only was Atlas your buddy the whole time a secret asshole, you were also like an MK Ultra baby. You were <laughs> create. You were like a petri dish baby. Oh, actually, no. You were actually birthed. Yeah, you're a, you're a clone of Andrew Ryan. Who? Yeah, I th- was he a clone? Because he was a, he was a he, quick clone. Yeah. Okay. I had to double the, check uh, it just to be on the safe side. But double check because I know Andrew Ryan had a baby with Jasmine Jolene, which 
that's in Fort Frolic too, which is why it's the best section because it also has story. Yeah, partway it says partway through the game, it turns out you're a vat vat baby half clone of Andrew Ryan, who Frank Fontaine sure. had grown Fuck in a it. super fast, conditioned in controllable fa- phrases. So like you were essentially cloned and brainwashed. Why did you have to, to be a clone? I don't know. <laughs> You don't why have. He, why couldn't he? Why couldn't Fontaine so, just storm Andrew Ryan's baby? Th- this is why I love this podcast because I have a theory behind this. My theory is that if he cloned Andrew Ryan, if it was like a half cloned vat baby of Andrew Ryan, right? When you get face to face with Andrew Ryan, he's less likely to kill him because he, he technically like is him, or at least would be seen as like his kid in some respect. So it's like the, the best assassin is like the one that Andrew Ryan wouldn't want to kill right off the bat. You know what I'm saying? Now they say like when you kill Andrew Ryan, you know, she got to take his genetic key. Yeah. And it's like, what the fuck is a genetic key? So that makes me think like, Oh, well maybe Jack had to do it because it only recognized like Andrew Ryan's DNA, but I don't know. That that feels like it's reaching. Why couldn't it just be an actual key? Yeah. I don't know. But the the whole the whole thing is the entire this is what really blew me away though. So the entire time you've been playing the game, you're going through, you're thinking you're doing all these great things, and it's it's you as the player's agency doing these things. Like, oh, I'm collecting a key for this, or I'm going here and opening up this area for this. But the game kind of flips it on its head and it's like, no, you weren't actually doing these things because you wanted to. You're doing them because Fontaine had brainwashed you in such a way that every time he said, would you kindly, then you would go and do them. Like that was his like mind control trick, which really in retrospect is really fucking cool. Like it's the more I think about it, the more cool it seems because it really takes the idea of the player controlling a character and just completely fucks with it. And I really like that. I do really enjoy it. And it's also fun to think about afterwards where it's like, damn, he really had me over a barrel. But then it's also (laughs) like, then then you also think like, Oh shit, what else would Jack be doing? Like, like from the outset, it's not really a whole lot else he could have done. So it just kind of feels like Atlas being like, yeah, I told him to do that. Why wouldn't he have gone through that door? <laughs> I said the trigger for It's like, well, no shit, dude. It's the only way forward. But, but it's I also do. how he crashed the plane. So that's like the other thing. That's the thing. That was the other cool twist. So if you replay the game again and you see what he's wait, reading. Wait, hold, up. hold up, actually. How did Fontaine tell him to crash the plane? Because it seems like... Oh, I guess if he like called him up like hours beforehand and was like, "Hey, would you kindly bring down that fucking plane?" Like, if it was like that, yeah. But what is the long term of this? How long can you tell someone to like do something? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to make, I'm trying to make plot holes at this point. It doesn't matter. Hold on, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a look because I'm pretty sure. All right, hold on. Give me one second. Let me mute this before it starts going crazy. All right, so it's 1960s, by the way. 1960 is what yeah. it takes place because it shows it I right did in the look beginning. That up. 
Um, do, 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 do. It was uh, New Year 1958, I think, or 1959. Yeah. So when the game starts, he looks at a picture, and then, hold on, it says on like he has like a a present in his hands and it says to jack with love from mom and dad would you kindly not and then you can't read the rest of the label um oh but you oh it actually yeah that's fun yeah so right from the beginning of the game you're actually being controlled by fontaine before the the plane crash even happens well just i just wanted to know if like any any activation of like him reading for instance because like that's kind of a i guess it's not super common to hear out in the wild but like oh yeah like could you say oh uh kindly pass the salt like is that enough (laughs) but like (laughs) oh sorry so think about it would you ever say like would you kindly in like a normal phrase i think that's why it works so well and it is, works especially well if the the character saying it is Irish, because it sounds more like one of those like English or Irish <laughs> phrases phrases that would be uttered. That is true, I guess. Like Frank Fontaine, hey, would you kindly pass the fucking salt? Like that, that doesn't really work. It too doesn't well. work as well. No, so it makes more sense that way. But- he just had to put on an Irish accent. He also <laughs> during the the twist scene, he talks about pretending to be a Chinaman for like six months or something. I'm yeah, like, which I love. I fucking love Ooh. that. <laughs> like, do you think that was an 11th hour edition where they're like, hey, you know what would be funny? This thickly accented New Yorker saying he was a Chinaman and someone was believing him. Like, everyone involved in that ruse is incredibly racist. Hey, man, maybe like, he just th- had hooded eyelids, you know? It, there, it could have been anything. I don't know how he faked it. But I, I love that line where he faked being a Chinaman. It's so stupid. It's like, were you doing this through? Because one of the first things Atlas tells you is, oh, would you kindly grab that short rave radio so it can ear fuck you this entire time? <laughs> it's like, oh, sure, I guess. I don't really want to. But then you do. But then the twist happens. And... Frank Fontaine is like, you know, would you kindly go get stepped on by a big daddy? And it's like, if you know, if Jack knows that Fontaine is controlling him through speaking to him directly, why would the first thing you do not be fucking throw away the radio? But either way, like, look at how much Andrew Ryan has gotten in contact with him the entire game. Like, he's taking over, like, screens and stuff throughout... So I'm sure it wouldn't really matter if the radio was. Thrown. I guess that's true. And to be fair, I think by the time you find out, there's like no real benefit to getting rid of the radio. One of the other characters, one of the other like four characters you actually interact with, Tenenbaum. She's like a really good doctor. She's a pseudo mother to the the uh, little sisters, which is just a whole other thing. <laughs> Well, I mean, look, uh, as a matter of fact, we should probably get in the little sisters. We're like an hour and a half in, so we we could we can like tie up this this whole this whole story thing because the little sisters in the story actually play a huge part because they they determine what ed- ending you get in the game because there is multiple endings. There's three, Dave. There's three, three. 
There is. I guess that's still multiple. Still multiple. So you have. So as you kill the big daddies in the game, if once you kill them, you have the option to either essentially pretty much kill the little sisters and take their atom. So that way you get a shit ton of atom and you can upgrade your shit easier. Or you can save the little sisters and take a little bit of their atom, but leave them alive. And then I guess Tenenbaum like lets them live out their days as normal little girls. Uh, and depending on what you do in those scenarios, if you kill them all, if you only kill some of them, or if you save them all, that determines the ending to the game, which isn't, there really isn't that much difference in the ending. Cause the ending is only like 30 seconds long anyways. No, is it just me or do the cut scenes like the proper cut scenes feel like they belong in like a late nineties PC game? Like I was rewatching them and I'm like, this shit looks like a fallout one cut scene. What the fuck? Like everything feels like it's lacking a layer of texturing or something. Like there's a sort of uncanniness to it. Yeah. It's it. It's not that it's missing something. I think it's they're just so heavily compressed and they didn't mm. want to add levels of detail that wouldn't show up in the cutscene very well. So they just kind of like left it as like pretty bare bones as far as cutscene goes. Plus there's not a lot of cutscenes in this game. There's there's like four. It's nothing. Yeah. And they do look pretty bad though. It's not like Resident Evil 2 PS1 bad levels of compression. It's not that horrible, but yeah. they are compressed pretty bad. Even in the remaster, like they didn't fix any of those cutscenes in That's the remaster. That's why I struggled to call it a remaster because it looks pretty similar. And you mentioned the frame rate. I'm illiterate and don't care about frame rates. I'm sure if you put them together, I'd have an opinion one way or the other, but at present, no. Nah. Yeah, but like it. It was just a way to re-release it. Like you could have called it Bioshock re-release, and it's fine. But for Bioshock One, at least they added some DLC to it, which is fine. It's all right. It's there. <laughs> <laughs> I have played the DLC. I just don't remember any of it. Like I literally I was, don't remember any of it. I was gonna replay it, but I couldn't be asked to like. One of them is literally just a puzzle. Actually, two. There's like for Bioshock one, there's two that are just puzzles. Essentially, it's more gameplay, so it's fine. And then a third one is like these combat arenas. So yeah. it's like, ah, oh, this is interesting. You can be a full human without playing the Bioshock one DLC. Yeah, but. For the remaster, they also had a sort of little museum for Bioshock 1, which you can see a lot of concept art and early character models, which is incredibly interesting. I feel like they could have added a little more. Well, yeah, they they could always add a little more. They could have actually also remastered the games. That would have been nice, too. And fun fact, if you get the remasters on PC, uh, sometimes they don't run on PC well or at all because i can't even get them to run on my rig and my rig is nothing out of the ordinary it's literally just like a an amd 3900x with a fucking 2070 super 
So it should definitely be able to run it, but I always have issues running the remasters, but I can run the originals fine. It's very fucking weird. I think I was having difficulty with that at some point, or I saw like it had mixed reviews on Steam, something like that, which for Bioshock, that is, you know, startling. I know, because this is mostly like Ken Levine was like the dude that was like the PC guy. Like he did System Shock 2 and fucking Thief. I figured the, the PC ports of these would be great, and they're fucking awful. Uh, that's one thing we didn't get into is people being like, oh, it's just System Shock 2. System Shock did this. Yeah, it's the same guy. Like, it's the same people. Yeah. But even but when System the game Shock came out, 2 is, is, is way more of an immersive sim than this. Like, System yeah. Shock 2, everything's like a roll of the dice. It, it, it doesn't feel remotely as good as this game does. It's somehow this game feels more weighty, even though the guns feel like they don't have any impact. Um, this game is just much more refined, but I, I can't wait for like a System Shock remake to come out because apparently like three different companies are working on them. So you know, whichever one happens first is going to be the one I'm going to play. But like for overall, like what this game did, it made immersive Sims cool and actually fun and easy to play. Like the only thing that's really annoying about this game. I would have to admit is having to search every fucking item in the game for like, like, you know, food or drinks or uh, first aid kits like that gets tedious after a while. But even still, it's you don't have to do it. Like you said, your wallet was maxed out by like the third area of the game. So if you don't want to, you can just fucking kill big daddies and get money that way. It doesn't matter. And that's one of the big things for me is. I feel a need to search everything. And that's just a me thing. Like it's easily counterable by just not doing it, but it's also like, well, I'm not facing any challenge. The gameplay is easy and it's not like a survival horror. It's more actiony. So clearly you want me to stay in the fight. So why am I going to do anything besides what's super efficient? You know, like it's difficult. Yeah. But also, there's ways to make it easier. There's vending machines around and you can hack them or like you can get into hacking too, which feels half baked, but at the same time too fleshed out. It's a weird <laughs> sort of dilemma where the hacking minigame is bullshit. I hate it now. Is it and, only because you've done it about 7 billion times? Uh, getting closer to 8 billion now actually but yes yes because i have this difficulty of like man i gotta search everything oh this vending machine isn't hacked gotta hack it and then every single time without fail every playthrough i do now i'll get midway through and be like why the fuck am i doing this <laughs> this is bullshit i'm done i'm not hacking anything anymore Everyone the things does that. that. Every single person that plays this game, I think, does that. Because I do it, too. Where I'm like, I don't even but, need to use this vending machine. Why the fuck am no, I hacking it? But, Dave, you said you like it. This was something I found out recently. I Had do. I known this prior, <sighs> I don't think we'd be talking right now. I do like the hacking minigame. It is fun. The problem is, it needs to have... like If this game, instead of had it, having just one hacking minigame 
had three equally good hacking mini games, no one would ever complain about it. The problem is it's the same hacking mini game for everything and everything needs to be hacked. And I'm the type of asshole that doesn't want to waste a quick hack tool. So I will just deal with do, like doing that mini game over and over and over and over again until I'm just like you where I'm just like, I don't even know why I'm hacking these things anymore and just stop doing it altogether. Like this, this game has so much going on that even when you think you're done discovering things, it throws a new thing in. Like when you get to Arcadia, which is the fourth level, I think that sounds about right. Yeah. I think that's the somewhere fourth around then you find out, Oh, there's also crafting now. And it's like, Oh, what the fuck do you mean crafting? It's like, pfft. So you go to a machine and you can craft some stuff there. It's like, well, do I have components? And they're like, yeah, you have components now. <laughs> and that's what brings me back into looting everything. It's like, well, now I have to. I maxed out on ammo, health, everything. And my wallet is even full, which is clearly Jack is the product of his of Andrew Ryan because he doesn't give a shit about money, which funny thing I noticed playing through this time. Andrew Ryan's face is on the money. You say you don't give a shit about the money, but clearly you do. Like, yeah, it's a whole thing. I don't care. Yeah, it just keeps throwing things at you. But the hacking minigame, oh, that stupid fucking water pipe bullshit. It really should have been different things for different, different games for different things. It was so bad. Universally panned 7.9999, like, 7.9 repeating billion people agreed that it was shit. Even unborn babies thought it was shit. But Dave is the only one that liked it. Listen, thankfully, it's fun. All right. It's fun the first couple times. And then it's like, oh, there's only one path for you to go. Oh, how are you going to do this? Uh, I guess I'm just going to make the pipe go to the other pipe. I guess that's what I'm going to do. Like the other 800 times I've done it today. I will not defend my my love for the pipes, but I will say that if they did have... <laughs> you, you, you'd be liking a certain kind of fucking pipe if you're liking the pipe in a game. Oh. So, let's say hypothetically... Bioshock 2 changed it and made it way more streamlined. That's the, that's the only thing I want to say. Yeah. Well, they should have had a separate one for, like, turrets, a separate one for cameras, a separate one for each type of vending machine, and it would have been, like, a different story. Because at least you'd be like constantly being engaged by something new every time you clicked on something. Instead of just like, oh man, this safe's going to be harder than the fucking camera that I just hacked because safes are always harder. Like, it just wasn't enough variety. But I just love the idea of uh, hacking a safe is making sure the plumbing is correct on it. 100% correct. Like, like you look at a dial safe... You show it to a goddamn alien, they could probably like pull out a stethoscope and do that whole like Western bullshit. No, no, no. Bioshock's like, you gotta fix the fucking pipes on this safe if you want it to open. All I'm saying. No wonder this city is decaying. Who designed it? The city was designed the way it was designed with pipes everywhere and everything's run on pipes and weird green goo. And we just have to accept that was Andrew Ryan's vision. It is Noir Art Deco Steampunk, okay? It's my newest Etsy shop, and you will respect it. Fair enough. It is a, it is a, a good thing, though, the art direction. 
Yeah, we won't say too much about it. Like it's you know, but it's there. Well, the art direction is timeless. Like if you oh, yeah. boot this game up now, it still looks good. And this game's going on twenty years old pretty soon. So like, think about that. The it it's really one of those things that even though it was developed in Unreal Engine, which has like this horrible track record of being like terribly optimized in some games or being like the gears of war gray brown bullshit this game has excellent an excellent color palette the enemies although they do ragdoll when you kill them which is fucking hilarious like their overall aesthetic is really cool they have really cool silhouettes really good art direction when it comes to the enemies Big Daddies look amazing because it's just a great character design. Same thing with the little sister. Everything in this game was like built to last, and it does hold up really well. Like they didn't really need to remaster anything, and I think that's why the remasters are just pretty much straight ports of the original with better frame rates because nothing really needed to be changed. I will say about the little sisters, I think I'm the only person that finds them more endearing as slug-filled monsters than as their hollowed-out, uncanny valley human selves. Plus, they're annoying like, as humans, in my opinion. They have giant eyes! They have anime their eyes. eyes are hollow. I hate it. Every single time. Like, you can choose to rescue or harvest them. You rescue them to get the good ending. You harvest them to get the your shithead ending. But when you rescue them, they look like hollow monsters. Like, I don't get it. Rapture has had some funny ideas, but that's that takes the cake. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Is there anything else you want to say about Bioshock? Because I think I covered all of my topics. The final boss battle, which is the only boss battle. No, no, no. So it's not huh? the only one. You fight the doctor. That you counts. fight Simon, but that's that's just like fighting a big daddy. That's not a boss battle. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so he is technically like if you want to get technical, he is the only. He's like a traditionally accepted boss battle. We'll say yeah, and it's fucking awful. It's literally just a bullet sponge. There's nothing really more to say about it, and the game kind of Which is punishes you for not saving up the appropriate amount of ammo or blowing all your money at like a a fucking circus of value before you get to oh that is burned into my brain yeah that that fucking clown uh that's actually oh i learned this recently i can't recall who that is but it's somebody shocking really i think oh my gosh it's gonna bug me Mm. we're gonna we're gonna take a pause real quick Great, now the wiki's not loading all the way through. This bullshits. Why just Google it? Okay, so the Circus of Values, fun fact, voiced by Ken Levine. Oh, that's wonderful. I remembered it was somebody important. <laughs> I will, I'm not going to lie, I thought it was the voice of Invader Zim. My, my brain was like, yeah, that's probably right, fuck it. Uh, no, it's not. So that, <laughs> that asshole very- haunts my, my fucking mind. Because I, I hear that in my sleep. Anytime I play this game. The circus of value. I have a very distinct memory. This is unique to me and two other people. I was with my brother and uh, our mutual friend one time. And we were playing like one of those like little games to win a bouncy ball or some shit. And, 
and the machine sounded like the circus of values like identical <laughs> this was before bioshock as well and it went like how about some money honey <laughs> and i was like dying laughing at that or it said something like that and then i heard the circus of values in bioshock i'm like it's just that guy again that's so that was, that was fun that's a fun little connection but yeah the boss battle is bullshit, and sadly, it's not something Bioshock has ever gotten right. Even up until Infinite, there's not really... They just kind of don't know what to do, and the gameplay doesn't warrant it. Like, there's one fight that's kind of a... At least one that springs to mind in Bioshock Infinite. You're just fighting a ghost. Oh, which, yeah. Like, that's... <laughs> like, having this conversation earlier, how the fuck do you fight a ghost... Mm. but that's for another time yeah uh, uh, the boss battle is fucking pointless and they honestly shouldn't have any boss battles in this game because it just it breaks the flow of the game to begin with and they're all the same they're just bullet sponges nobody fucking likes we, bullet sponge bosses no and it is not even that spongy like it's just kind of you know if you know what to use at the different stages you just kind of chunk them like you can easily burn through them in five minutes, if that. And how they tried to up the ante and up the stakes for that is, oh, there's no Vita Chambers and saving is disabled, but it saves the second you get into the arena. And it's like, all right, well, this is fine, I guess. So it's like, you admit, the game admits that the Vita Chambers make things too easy. Well, I think so they, they couldn't have to figure out how to not break the game in that area. So they're just like, oh, you just yeah. fucking reload your last save, which just happens to be the autosave right before you enter the, the fight room. Yeah, it's kind of like the game showing its cards. It's like, all right, I'm bluffing. But, you know, let's just finish this up. Let's We're both done playing now, huh? Yeah, okay. <laughs> well... They really could have ended it with just like I know what my favorite boss technical boss ending to a game ever is fucking Fable what? Two. You know why? Because you just shoot a guy. That's it. You have all the hot takes today. You like the pipe mini game. <laughs> the Fable Two ending is good. Yeah. Personally, I think one of the best bosses oh, also, spoiler is Fable alert. One. <laughs> oh wait! Oh wait! But maybe Fable the Lost Chapters is end boss is better. Oh, which I've never played. Fun? I have to play. I have to play it. I have the anniversary edition. I should just play that. Oh man. You know, we should do an episode on Fable the Lost Chapters, because I have a lot to say about that. Oh we or Fable Anniversary, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. We're moving on to other games now. This I we're ending it. We're ending it here. At the bad right. at the bad boss battle. Both. Yeah, so just like the ending of Bioshock 1, this has a bad ending too. <laughs> Fuck it. Or an underwhelming ending, I guess. Yeah, underwhelming. But like Bioshock itself is such a fucking great game overall. We 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 really didn't talk that much shit about it. We only talked the shit no. about the 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 boss battle at the end of the game, the pipe mini game, and the weapons and like the shooting. Everything else fucking amazing. So that's actually not that bad. You know what? I, I just thought, why didn't they do... Uh, never mind. We could talk for hours about the goddamn pipe minigame. I don't <laughs> want to anymore. 
We're done with the pipe mini game. We're done with it. You can talk about so much in the game, and for some reason, people just gravitate towards the pipe mini game. Always. The thing they probably thrown in at the 11th hour to just be like, oh, we have a hacking mini game. (laughs) Like, you know, and you can tell that because later on in the game, if you do, oh, we didn't even talk about researching things. You can take pictures. There's a whole lot to the game. Oh, God. It's hard to sum it up, but go play it. It's a fun game. If you like video games, chances are you've already played it, but it's good. Also, yeah, you should just play it just because, like, Bioshock, the collection, or the the remastered collection, whatever the fuck it's called, is usually, like, $10 or $5 on almost everything. Literally. PC, Switch, Xbox, PlayStation. Just get it anywhere, and it'll run fucking well. People always talk about, like, the orange box is the best collection of things. Have you not gotten the Bioshock collection on sale? It can be any day of the goddamn week that ends in Y, and that will be on sale on some platform. This is true. How are you good? It's like 80 hours of solid gameplay right there. Just handed to you. Yeah. But I will say orange box is also excellent. There isn't it's still there isn't a game on the orange box that's bad, or even like a game that I'd rate less than like a ninety out of a hundred. You know, damn, you really like Team Fortress Two and their hats, huh? I really fucking do. All right, the next episode's on Team Fortress Two. Ha 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 ha! Spoiled it. All right, we're gonna end it at two hours, clapping it out. All right. Uh, Perfect. Is there anything you want to say to the audience and our now new one Patreon supporter, Johnny V? I was Thanks. just going to say, subscribe to the Patreon, which I definitely knew existed <laughs> the entire time. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, go play Bioshock. Even if you've played it once, play it again. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of things to like about it. If you're of the creative persuasion, I personally have taken a lot of influence from Bioshock. It's a it's a lovely game, a, a lovely series. Give Bioshock two another chance. Try it out. Give it give it another shot. It's worth it. Yeah, just get the whole collection. Again, it's like ten dollars. Get the whole collection. Ninety like percent of the time, you can find it for like ten bucks anywhere. I'm I bought it for ten dollars on the Switch, and I'm pretty sure I bought it for like ten dollars on the Xbox as well. So. It's super, super cheap and absolutely worth it. You, that's like amazing value, and you don't have to get it from the circus of value either. This isn't set in stone, but I think we can safely say if you subscribe to the Patreon, we'll get you the collection. We'll buy you it. I can't. If I can't reach, confirm that. The, don't, if we don't reach a thousand dollars on Patreon, I think that's pretty good. No. Yeah. No. Oh uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just go buy it yourself or you know mooch off your friends mooch off your friends start your own GoFundMe so that way you can buy the $10 Bioshock collection do that that's the better way to do it I All think right. Ken Levine blows his nose with these now probably I don't even know if he makes money off it because he's technically he probably sold the rights to 2k games if I had to take a guess probably Irrational is dead and it's a tragedy it is it really is all right, so that's that's the show. Thank you all, all right. for listening. Uh, make sure you subscribe to us on your podcatcher of choice. We're on literally fucking everything. 
uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. I'm only on Zoloft. <laughs> Pandora. <laughs> uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. Amazon. I didn't even know Amazon had podcasts, but apparently we, we, we publish it there. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, the, they're apparently they're, they're there too. Uh, and we have the YouTube channel as well. All the links are in the description below. Also, enjoy the new intro song. Um, same person that does the new intro song did the old intro song. The new one, in my opinion, is just a fucking a, amazing track. So uh, go take a listen to his stuff on SoundCloud. Again, links in the description. Go take a look at it. Check it out. And thank you all for listening. And I will catch you all next week. Have a good one, folks. I will catch you sooner. Goodbye. <laughs>